If you've just joined us, we're on our 40-day march uh, through Lent towards Easter, looking in the Bible at the last few hours that Jesus spent uh, with his disciples. So the, the chapters in John's Gospel chapter 13 through to chapter 17. Just cover a few hours, the last moments that Jesus spent with them. If you've missed a sermon, you can catch up uh, a series at the back or online, and you're meeting week by week in your small group to pick up uh, some of the things that we're talking about here on a Sunday and to develop them further in your groups and uh, on into our lives. So this morning, fruitfulness. We all crave significance. We all want our lives to matter more than the number of our years. Why do thousands upon thousands of young people queue all day to audition for the X Factor when they do not have a hope on earth of ever getting past first base? In fact, why do they queue all day simply to make fools of themselves on on global television as it is now? And why isn't there someone somewhere in the world kind enough to say to most of them, singing, it's not your thing? Where are the mums? Come on, mums, on Mother's Day. They're there making an utter... My mum said I could do it. Mum, no, help, save us. Why? Why do they put themselves in a place where they will be mocked by the entire world, heavily criticised by musical judges, and face international humiliation? Why? Because they think, even if it's a slither of a chance, there is a slither of a chance, however small, of being successful. There is for them a chance, however remote, of having their name up in lights of receiving the adulation of others, of being significant and known in a world full of nameless faces. But momentary significance is not enough. Paris Hilton, interviewed in December, said, I want to start my own legacy, build my own dreams. In other words, I want my significance to be greater than the sum of my three score years and ten. I want to be part of something that will last. To be honest, it's the same cry in all of us. The idea that when our lives are over, that nothing of significance will remain, that our life's work is reduced to an epitaph that's simply left to decay in the wind and the rain, is intolerable for us if we contemplate it too long. We want to have made a difference. And we want that difference to be a difference that will last. But much of what we do doesn't last. We build a successful business and one day we'll have to sell it or give it away. We build a a strong career, one day we'll have to retire. We create beautiful homes and manicured lawns and one day we will be too old to look after our homes and to mow our lawns and one day too frail to stay there altogether. Does nothing last? Will anything I do stand beyond the years of my life? We want it to. Each one of us here wants it to because God made us that way. The Bible says that God has set eternity in our hearts. Something inside us will not settle for the here and now. We want to be part of something bigger. We really do echo the words of the song, I want to give my life for something that will last forever. And now, as Jesus gathers his disciples around that meal table, For those final hours together, the cross is moments away, its shadow falling over every word that they share together. He says to these fearful, faint-hearted 
disciples, never, never forget, I've chosen you for something that will last forever. Forget everything about this morning. Remember this. God has chosen us for things that will last forever. God has appointed us for lasting significance. Here it is in verse 16, if your Bibles are are still open. Jesus said to his disciples, you didn't choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. Two incredible things in that verse. The first thing is that you've been chosen. It's great to be chosen, isn't it? It's a wonderful feeling to be chosen for the team. It's a wonderful feeling to be chosen for that job. It's a wonderful feeling when someone picks you out for that all-important task. There is nobody here who does not like, even love that moment of being chosen. God in heaven has chosen you. What for? He's chosen you for fruit. What kind of fruit? Any fruit? No, not just any fruit. Fruit that's here today and gone tomorrow? Certainly not. Fruit that begins to decay the moment it's picked? Certainly not. This is a fruit of an altogether different kind. This is fruit that will last. The God of heaven chosen you and me for lasting significance. In a world where people are putting so much effort into building things that are temporary, things that are here today and gone tomorrow, we've been chosen to build for things that will last. And if God, who is outside time and space, says that it will last, then I suspect it jolly well will. Nothing's built to last these days, isn't it? We don't repair things, we simply replace them. Everything is but for a moment. Accept your life and God's purpose for your life. God's purpose for your life is not but for a moment. It's for something that will last well on into eternity chosen for significance. Tell your neighbour how that makes you feel. Oh, I don't think you understood. Tell your neighbour. In this context, I did not mean your neighbour in your house next door, because he or she are probably not here with us in church. I meant your neighbour in the pew. Tell your neighbour how it feels. The God of heaven chosen you for something that will last forever. Are we bonding here? Are we struggling with this? How sad though, how sad, and Jesus said it with a heaviness of heart, how sad that so many people will settle for something that's only temporary. Jesus put it like this, what good is it in the end for a man to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit his very self, his very own soul? You're chosen to bear fruit that will last Chosen not for human success, but eternal significance. So how does that work out in our lives? How do we begin to understand that? Well, Jesus is helping the disciples in these verses to get a handle on it, and we're going to look at them together. To live for eternal significance, we must be planted in Jesus. I am the vine, you are the branches. As Christians, we talk a lot about inviting Jesus to come into our lives, and so we should. But as often as the Bible talks about Jesus coming into our lives, the Bible talks about us being in Jesus. The phrase in Christ is a very common one. It's as if it's creating the image of your life and mine being uprooted from this world with all its darkness and struggle and confusion and being replanted in a totally different kind of soil. In the life-giving, love-conquering, wrong-forgiving, powerful-living soil 
of Jesus Christ. Is it? It's as if the roots of your life have been taken from where they are and planted into this altogether totally different kind of soil. Now, if the roots of your life this morning, on this Sunday morning, are still in the things of the world, the, the things of struggle, the things of this life that are only temporary, then the kind of fruit that you will bear will be the fruit of struggle, the fruit that's only temporary, the fruit that does not last. But if your roots are in Christ, in His love, His power, His forgiveness, His life, then isn't it true that our lives can produce a fruit of an altogether totally different kind? Most of you know I'm no gardener. My study is to plants what Eastbourne is to Britain. Uh, with apologies if you're thinking of moving to Eastbourne. Uh, but even I understand, at least in theory, that where the plant is planted makes all the difference. You need the right soil and the right humidity and the right moisture and the right exposure to sunlight in order for a plant to grow. And if you deprive a plant of those things that it naturally needs, it will not flourish and it will not produce fruit. People are struggling in our world to live significant lives while they are rooted in the wrong soil, planted in the wrong place. And people are struggling to make something that they feel makes a difference, not just for now, but forever. And they know that they can't. And they beat themselves up about it. (coughs) Excuse me. And so people feel rubbish about their lives and rubbish about what they're achieving. They think it's all about them. If only they were to realize that they're in the wrong soil, planted in the wrong place. That there's nothing wrong. It's like a plant that is not flourishing. You're shouting at a plant for not flourishing in the shade when the label says it needs direct sunlight. There's nothing wrong with the plant. The first few plants that died in my study, I thought there was something wrong with the plants. I just bought a bad batch. You just think I'm a bad person, I'm a bad batch, I'm just not flourishing. No, that's rubbish. But maybe you're planted in the wrong soil. Maybe where you're digging your resources for life, it's in the wrong place. It's in the world outside. The Bible describes as dark and only temporary. And what you want is to get your plant, the plant of your life in the soil that's life. That's to produce fruit that lasts forever. So I often think it's us. When maybe we're just the wrong in the wrong soil, in the wrong place. Being planted in Jesus, by the way, has nothing to do with where we are geographically. Often we uh, make uh, excuses regarding our fruit-bearing potential because of the place we find ourselves, either geographically or circumstantially. The church where I grew up was on uh, a very economically deprived council housing estate in Cardiff. It was rough. The dogs went round in pairs. That kind of environment. And people would say, oh, Clan Rumley, it's a really hard place. Not much fruit there. And I believed them. I didn't know any different. That's where we were. I believed them. Oh, really tough. And they kind of said it in a patronising, pitiful kind of way. A thankless task where there would never be much reward. Then I came to Suffolk. Bright, breezy, open, delightful Suffolk. And people said, oh, really hard Suffolk. Suffolk people, they're really reserved. It's like, no, not much fruit there. Suffolk. And that was people who've lived it all their lives. You want to hear what the others said? But since then, I've discovered people say that about everywhere. Everywhere they say it. Oh, very hard. We say it about our churches. We say it about our towns. We say it about our work. Sometimes we even say it about our families. 
Oh, if you worked where I worked, it's really hard to be a Christian. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm sure it's really hard to be a Christian where you work, because it's hard everywhere. What do they say to Jackie Pullinger heading to the underworld of Hong Kong? What do they say to David Wilkinson heading to the underworld of New York? What do they say to the Worldwide Meshes tribe a few years ago heading to the inner-deprived parts of Manchester? What do they say about Africa? What do they say about South Africa? What do they say about the mining villages of South Wales at the turn of the last century? But they were wrong. Wrong every single time. Because when Jackie Pullinger went into the underworld of Hong Kong, she went in Christ. Hallelujah. David Wilkinson, in Christ. So we could go on, and there are many other examples too. But we've fallen for the lie. But in certain places, no, in Christ. Significance is not about where we are geographically or where we are circumstantially. It is about where we are relationally in Jesus. Isn't that what it says in these verses? If we are in Jesus, wherever we are geographically, we are in a position to bear fruit. Do you believe that? That's what he says here in these verses. And these disciples were going to go to some terrible places. But he says, in Christ, remain in me and you will bear much fruit. Forget about the right school and the right college and the right job and the right family and the right neighbours and the right All the other stuff we say we need to produce. Forget about all of that. In Christ, relationally. In Christ. It's all about that fundamental relationship that we talked about last time, whereby the Holy Spirit were welcomed into the deepest parts of uh, God. Are you firmly planted in Jesus today? Secondly, you must be pruned by Father God. Streamlining the plant for maximum fruitfulness. Instead of the nourishment of the soil going uh, to lots of different branches, many that are less productive than the other ones, by chopping off those not very productive branches, the nourishment goes straight to the branches that will bear maximum fruit. Good branches are held back by the other parts of the plant that are taking nourishment but not doing much with it. Give me a round of applause. I know nothing about pruning. Thank you very much. Are there parts of your life are there parts of your, that are holding you back? And if you were a plant, someone kindly would come along and say, I'm going to chop that part off because it's holding this whole plant back. Yeah. Are there parts? Yeah. Parts holding me back. We store our caravan. I think I've told you about the only bush in our garden that I pruned before. But with the risk of boring you, I'm going to tell you again. We store our caravan away from home uh, and we bring it to our drive uh, when we're going to go somewhere. And uh, if I park it on the far right-hand side of our drive, then I can get the other cars in and out and it doesn't create so much a hassle. The trouble is with parking it on that far side of the drive is there is this enormous bush that gets in the way every time. So, in order to respect the rest of our close who uh, would be offended by my gardening prowess, in order not to intimidate them anyway, I do my gardening at night. And I get my shears with the extendable handles for extra power and I hack, I prune this bush in order that the caravan can fit neatly onto the drive. Then we go on holiday. One week, two weeks later we come back and what's happened? The bush is there right in the middle of the drive smirking at me. Take the shears, cover of darkness, wipe that smile right off that little bush's face. Praise God. It's amazing what heavy pruning can do to my little bush. And I dare say it's pretty amazing what some pruning could do in our lives. 
The more you prune, the faster it grows. It's a bit like shaving, isn't it? You shave your legs one day, by the following morning, you're like a porcupine. And that's just the men. It's true, isn't it? So do you want to grow really fast in things that will last forever? In the right soil, prepared to do some pruning? Let God get his shears, the ones with the extendable handles, for extra power. And let's whip out, let's cut out those things that are holding us back. So what's holding you back from flourishing where God's planted you? Is it your time and your energy and your focus preventing you, slowing you down? Is it the things that you worry about? It's absorbed so much energy, you've got no energy for anything else. What about some of those controlling habits that you wake up every day and it feels like they grip you? Wrong thoughts and wrong actions. Is it the focus on success rather than significance? Your uh, deep-rootedness in things that are temporal rather than those things that are eternal? Is it that you can't get past the material to see the more, more important things that are spiritual? It could be your attitude towards yourself or to others. What's dragging you down? And if you this morning genuinely don't know what's dragging you down, I promise you, if you ask God and you really want to know, he'll show you. You might not like what you see, but I promise you he'll answer that prayer. If you really want to know the things that are holding you down, David modelled a prayer for us at the end of Psalm 139. Search me, O God, and know me, and see what's in me that is offensive to you. So to live for eternal significance, we've got to be planted in Jesus, we've got to be pruned by God the Father, and we must be persevering in Him. Gardening is not instant success. Keep at it. Planting, watering, feeding, pruning, clearing. You can blitz a garden, but if you don't keep at it, what will happen a few months later? You know those gardening makeover programs, that Titchmarsh and Charlie What's-A-Face, you know that, those ones? I want to produce another program that goes back to those gardens 12 months later, because they're always terrible, aren't they, when they turn up, that's the idea, they, they transform this terrible garden, make it all beautiful, and, and they take the cameras and the program ends and the credits roll, what about three months later? The people living in the house aren't gardeners, they would have done it themselves if they were, six months later, you imagine going back 12 months later and seeing the complete mess that had been left with a garden that had been unattended. You've got to keep going. It's no good getting all fired up about it this morning, then having your lunch and having a snooze and doing the same thing next week. We've got to keep going. We've got to persevere. Florence Chadwick became the first woman to swim the English Channel both ways in 1948, getting across in 13 hours, 22 minutes. That's just slightly slower than a P&O ferry. She broke the current world record. But in 1952, she tried to swim the chilly ocean waters from Catalina Island uh, um, uh, right down to the Californian shore. She swam through foggy weather and choppy seas for 15 hours and her muscles began to cramp. You know that terrible feeling? Do you, do you swim as a kid when they're uh, training thing and you get this terrible cramp in the back of your calves? Just me, okay? Yeah, really painful. Imagine it, really painful, back of your calves. And she was begging the people in the boat alongside her, please, can I stop? Please, can I get out of the water? And her mother, oh, I have a mother's got a lot to answer for. Mother's going, keep going, dear, keep going, dear. And she tried to keep going, but eventually, so exhausted, and in the freezing cold, her muscles froze, and they had to literally lift her with her willingness out of the water. They paddled just a few more minutes, and the mist lifted, and she discovered she was just half a mile away from the shore. All I could see, she said, was the fog at a news conference afterwards. I think if I could have seen the shore, I would have made it. You've got to keep going. When you can't see the shore, keep going. When you think it's never going to end, 
Keep going. We've got to keep going. And if you're in a fog this morning and you're persevering for Jesus in something, I urge you, keep going. You might be just strokes away from the shore. Even as we sit here, heaven might be getting the trumpets ready. Angels might be assembling, saints gathering, demons trembling because the end's in sight. Keep going. Stay at it. One more stroke. And then another one. Stay in the race. Stay in the fight. Christian life's never a quick fix, is it? Keep going. But we want it all now, don't we? Isn't it fantastic in the world that we live when almost everything you want is just one mouse click away? But for the things that really matter, you sometimes have to wait. We don't do waiting much anymore. One of the curators at Washington Zoo said that most visitors think that hippopotami stay under the water for long periods of time. Actually, he said, the average is 90 seconds. But most visitors never wait that long. Persevere for your sake, for God's sake, and remaining in him bear fruit that will last. To live for eternal significance, we must be praying in his name. Verse 7 If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be given you. What an incredible promise in prayer. Ask whatever you wish and it will be yours. But there is a condition. Remain in me. That's the only condition, but there is a condition. And then it comes again in verse 16. You didn't choose me, but I chose you. Appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. Then... The Father will give you whatever you ask. But there's a condition. The exactly same condition as there was in verse 7. Put in a different way, if you pray in his name. That is, praying according to his will and his approval. Praying in accordance with his mind and with his character. For an obvious example, I cannot steal or lie or cheat in Jesus' name. That doesn't make any sense. Lying and stealing and cheating goes right against his character. It's contrary to his will and purpose. I cannot steal in Jesus' name. The Christian prays in the name of Jesus. What does it mean? Among other things, it means, someone writes, we cannot expect God to honour any petition that is not in keeping with the mind and spirit of Christ. God will do nothing that is contrary to his nature and his nature has been clearly revealed in Christ. It turns the tables on how we think about prayer. To pray in Jesus' name is to pray with the mind, the will of Christ, which puts a very different slant on things. Because you're praying, I suspect, and I only suspect it because it's so often like my praying, my praying is so often about me and my longings, and my desires, and my ambitions, and my fears, and my ease in life. But praying in Jesus' name is the opposite. It's no longer about my longings, but his longings. No longer about my ambition, but his. No longer my desires, but his desires, his purposes. And so we've used prayer so often as a means of getting God to do what we want, when he actually gave it to us as a means of allowing him to do what he wants. And so at the heart of any legitimate praying, any praying that really is in his name, is that little section right in the middle of the Lord's Prayer. Your kingdom come, your will be done, here on earth, just as it is in heaven. But it's tricky, isn't it? It's tricky, actually, to know the mind of Christ, because our wills are often so twisted and confused. 
Tricky to know because even our good intentions are so often profoundly corrupt. Tricky to know because our prayers, I suspect, are wildly different sometimes from the ones Jesus would have prayed. Maybe that's why they don't always go with a bang and we don't always get the answer, yes. So we turn the tables on prayer. It's not me trying to get God to do what I want, but about me allowing him to do what he wants. And every single time I find myself in the place of letting God do what he wants, then every prayer is answered with a yes. That's the promise. That's the deal. I don't know where that leaves you, but it leaves me kind of asking the question, Lord, you've got to teach me how to pray in this new kind of way. Because I don't generally get a 100% success rate with my prayers. Do you? Generally not. We get some good days, seeing God do some fantastic things. In this last month in our church, God has done the most amazing things in people's lives. I wish I could share them with you. It's not my story to tell. God does answer prayer in a phenomenal way. But we're not here yet, are we? Or are you just waiting for me to catch up? And so, Lord, teach me to pray. It's why it's so powerful when the Holy Spirit comes, as we were thinking about last week, when we can pray in the Spirit, whether that be praying in tongues or whether it be praying in those moments when we're in the the depths of God and the Holy Spirit is leading us in prayer. It doesn't really matter which way it is, but those moments when the Spirit helps us. And we do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes or prays for us with groans that words cannot express. What a very powerful moments! Because everything's lining up in those moments. We're praying in the name of Jesus, in his will. We're letting God do what he wants, and God's power comes when we let God do what he wants. And finally, to live for eternal significance, we must be participating in his family. The church. You can't do any of this stuff by yourself. That's why we say your small groups are really important. You'll only do it with others. You cannot do it by yourself. The Bible says we can't do it by ourselves. That we need the support, the love, the friendship, the fellowship of other believers traveling with us in the same direction. My command is this. Love each other as I have loved you. What does that mean? Well, how did Jesus love? Jesus loved them completely. There was nothing he wouldn't do to love them. There was nowhere he wouldn't go to love them, even across on Golgotha's hill. That's how he loved them. And he says, like that, you do the same. Okay? So there's no limits to our love for one another. There does not come a point when we say to ourselves, if loving somebody else in our church means that, I'm not going to do it. That's too hard. That's too tough. That's too much. Jesus says there never comes a point like that. You love to the nth degree and you keep on loving all the way, even if it be to a cross outside a city wall. But more, even more than that, if we love like Jesus, we need to understand what his love for them produced. You see, Jesus in his love for them longed that they might leave their ordinary lives, their temporary lives, in order to live extraordinarily in order to live for lasting significance. That's what he loved them for. 
That's what his love for them achieved. He loved them out of their ordinariness, tax collectors, fishermen in Galilee. He loved them from that ordinariness into something quite extraordinary, out of the things that mattered little into the things that mattered most. He said, you go fishing for fish, I'll teach you to fish for human beings whom I love. Out of temporary things, a meal today that is gone tomorrow, to feed people with things that will last forever. That's what his love did for them, didn't it? Lifted them out of the temporary into the eternal. Out of the not very much into the so very, very much. And that's what our love for each other must do. We need to love each other into this new dimension that Jesus was longing for his disciples to live just as he was leaving. Yeah, I need you to love me when I'm in need. And I need your love for me to pick me up when I'm alone or to be with me when I'm down. But more than anything, I need your love, and you need my love, that we might help each other out of our ordinariness into this extraordinary life to which God has called us, out of our temporary success into our eternal significance, and out of the things that matter little, that seem so important sometimes, don't they, into the things that matter much. It's in those moments when you love me out of that into this, and when I love you out of that into this, we're most fulfilling the way he loved his disciples. Going to the nth degree that we might leave our ordinariness behind. Chosen for lasting significance. Believe it for yourself and believe it for each other.